Greetings one and all, this is Jim, and we are going to attempt in this episode to wrap up our series on continuity and canon in various media, once more discussing the question, does canon matter? Today we're going to talk about the work of Douglas Adams, who as it happens is my favorite author. So I have a feeling I'm going to have a lot to say about this. We shall see. The series for which Douglas Adams is best known is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. It was originally intended as a trilogy. He then expanded the trilogy to four and then five books, but continued to call it a trilogy. The first book is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The second book is The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. The third book is Life, the Universe, and Everything. The fourth book is called So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. And when that came out, that was advertised as the fourth book in the trilogy. The fifth book, and the last one that Adams wrote for the series, is called Mostly Harmless, and was referred to as the fifth book in the increasingly inaccurately named trilogy. If you're not familiar with the series, then as you might have guessed from the titles and the way I'm talking about it, it's a science fiction comedy. I started reading it when I was about nine or ten years old, I think. It's hard to remember exactly when it was. But it was the first book that I remember getting and reading and finding absolutely hysterical. And these are not necessarily books for children, but there was still enough in there for me to find funny, even at that age. Douglas Adams had a major hand in shaping my sense of humor. In general, the books are about the last man to get off the planet Earth before it's destroyed, and the strange people he finds himself with, and the seemingly impossible situations he finds himself in, and it's really all about him trying to figure it out and come to terms with everything. He spends most of the series just sort of figuring out how to be. And it's a non-traditional narrative in that sense. It's not really so much a space opera spoof or a thing about this lone human's adventures in space. Not exactly. It's really about someone who is eternally out of their element, trying to figure out their place in everything and how to make their life work. And I think that was an aspect that spoke to me in particular as I was growing up. So it kind of helped me in that sense. Now, the question of continuity between the books themselves is not necessarily a major one. There's usually a healthy gap in time between each book. Adams was notoriously great at procrastination, so he would leave a lot of time between releases. The only exception to that, I think, is the gap between The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Restaurant at the End of the Universe, which I think was a much shorter one, because he already had a lot of the story that he wanted to tell, but realized at a certain point that he'd written enough for one book when he got about halfway through it. So he abruptly stopped The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and then started on The Restaurant at the End of the Universe pretty soon thereafter, I think. I'd need to look this up to be perfectly accurate, and right now I'm just going off of what I remember. Because, as I've stated before, this is rambling time, not looking things up time. I'll resort to that if I need to, but it's more important to just get this thing recorded. So that's what we're doing for now. In any case, for the most part, each book is pretty much a self-contained story. And while you've got characters continuing from one book to the next, each one does seem like a fresh approach. I don't believe there are any overt continuity errors or anything like that between the different novels at least none that I can think of, but then what Adams will often do is introduce a new factor that 
can sometimes make things that happened previously a bit different anyway, or not matter quite so much. In particular, there's quite a bit of time travel. There's also quite a bit of reality hopping, hopping from one parallel universe to another, especially in the fifth book. So that's something to look out for. The main character, consistently from book to book, is Arthur Dent, whose house is demolished by city planners at the beginning of the first book, and who then finds that the Earth is about to be demolished by galactic planners, and so he has to get off the planet quickly. He finds this out through his friend Ford Prefect, who turns out to be an alien. Arthur and Ford are the characters you consistently have throughout all the books. Growing up, I always thought of Ford as a cool, weird alien. He's a freelance journalist who writes for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it's only within the last few years, I think, that I came to the realization that he's basically an alien version of Hunter S. Thompson, or at least can be looked at that way, because he is very much a gonzo journalist. He just sort of randomly lobs himself at places, drinks as much booze as he possibly can, and tries to get a story hammered out to justify his being there. I don't recall him being into drugs as such, which would be one of Thompson's hallmarks, but you can look at it and kind of see the attitude there. And for me, at least, it's helpful to to think of him in that context. So you have Arthur, this very proper British fellow who's kind of almost a Bilbo Baggins-like character at first because he doesn't want to leave his creature comforts and they get pulled out from under him. And you team him up with this spaceship-hopping lunatic and hilarity results. There are other characters who are significant to the series. I'm not going to name them all right now, but the ones that I think are at least significant enough to mention here are Trillian, who is the other human to survive the destruction of Earth. Back on Earth, her name was Trisha McMillan, and she escaped Earth, I believe, a number of months before it was destroyed. She escaped with the other character who's worth mentioning here, Zaphod Beeblebrox, a two-headed, three-armed being from Beetlejuice 5, which is the same planet Ford Prefect is from, and and who is his semi-cousin, and who also, at the start of the books, happens to be the current president of the galaxy. And for shady reasons that get delved into deeper and deeper as the story goes, he has abandoned his post and stolen an experimental ship for a joyride, and with it is able to go pretty much anywhere in the universe, and beyond, though he does not have what one would exactly call total control over it. So it's a very fun series, but where the question of canon really comes up is in those conversations that one has about the different versions of the story. Because the books were not the first form that story took. The whole thing started with a radio series. Douglas Adams wrote the original radio show, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, for BBC Radio. It was, I believe, two series long, and they did it as a full audio drama, and it was that radio show that he adapted into the first two books. They still sell the audio for the radio show, because it helps give you an idea of where things came from. The scripts for the radio show are also available in a book that came out back in the 80s. And what I noticed when I looked at the books and then I looked at the radio plays was that there were significant differences. A lot of the events were the same, but they happened in a different order or they happened in a different way. There are things in the books that are not in the radio plays and there are things in the radio plays that are not in the books. And the thing is that this is very deliberate. Douglas Adams wanted to make sure whenever he created a new version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy story that it would be its own thing. He wanted to make sure that he was telling a story best suited to the medium that he was telling it in. So he made very deliberate changes whenever he adapted the story into something new. That was also the case with the computer game, which, as it turned out, was my introduction to Douglas Adams. 
In the 80s, he collaborated with Infocom, the folks who made text adventure games like Zork 1, 2, and 3, Wishbringer, Planetfall, A Mind Forever Voyaging. I could list quite a few right now because I had a dreadful addiction to Infocom games for quite a long time, but I shan't. I shall save that for another time. But suffice it to say, he collaborated with them, and they put out a text adventure game version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I played it for the first time on my uncle's Apple computer. He had, I believe, an Apple IIc. I think that was the type of computer he had at that time. And I immediately fell in love with it. My uncle also let me see the box that it came in as well, and it had a bunch of wonderful little props in it, like the council orders to demolish your house, other council orders to demolish your planet. It had these little cardboard cutout peril-sensitive sunglasses, which I don't believe actually appear in the game, but in the books, there are these sunglasses that turn completely black whenever anything that might alarm you appears, so that you can stay relaxed. And there was this little plastic bag that was labeled Microscopic Space Fleet. It was an empty little bag, but the idea was that there was a space fleet in there that you couldn't see because it was microscopic. Infocom really went all out with their packaging in those days. It was glorious. But in any case, I played that game as much as I could. And then later, I believe, my mother bought me the first book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it was kind of with the idea that maybe there would be clues in there that would help me get through the game. Such is not the case. The game is very different from the books, even though it has has a lot of the same elements, once again. But of course, once I started reading the first book, I was completely hooked on it, and I had to read all of them. I was also delighted to discover that there was a TV show. The BBC did a short series. All in all, I think it was a total of three or four hours worth of footage when you put them all together. The TV show was based fairly closely on the first series of the radio show, and unfortunately they did only do one series of it, so they didn't get into any of the stuff that happens later. But for me, it was an awesome show to watch. I loved it because it was one of my favorite pieces of literature come to life. Again, though, there were significant differences between it and the books, and even between it and the radio show. In particular, there are divergences that happen pretty far into it, some of that having to do with things you can show on TV versus just having an audio version, and some of it was just completely different story elements. And an interesting thing for me is that I believe he was working on the book and part of the radio show at the same time. There's a place in the script even where they talk about singing a song from the book. Then when they did the TV show, the places where it diverged from the radio show tended to involve things that they were putting in from the first two books. So all three of those versions of the story kind of borrowed from each other in some ways. And like I said, Douglas Adams made no bones about the fact that each version was different, and he even kind of puts an in-universe explanation in when he starts talking about alternate realities. And he talks about the idea that different versions of the same thing can be happening in different universes. And that is something that those who followed his work played with a bit more. And I'll talk a little bit about how that went on. But to start, I'm going to kind of keep things chronological here as best I can, as far as this particular series is concerned. And I'll say that the first thing that technically was within the Hitchhiker's universe, but was not worked on directly by Douglas Adams, was a book that came out as a novelization of a computer game that he was working on. Now, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit here to the 90s, when Douglas Adams had founded a company called The Digital Village. He put that company together to help him work on bunches of different versions of his stuff and to come up with new stuff. One of these things was a computer game called Starship Titanic. This is a reference to a passage that appears in one of the Hitchhiker's books. 
The Starship Titanic was, I believe, the first ship to be fitted with an early version of an infinite improbability drive, which is the same kind of drive that the Starship Heart of Gold has, that being the main ship that they travel on in the first three books. But the Starship Titanic is mentioned briefly in the Hitchhiker's books as having that early improbability drive, which they sort of threw in almost as an afterthought, which made it so that anything that possibly could go wrong with a ship would go wrong with it, and thus, shortly after they activated it, the ship suffered a total existence failure. Now in this computer game, the ship has appeared, and you get to go onto it and explore it. Douglas Adams appears in the game, and while I believe there are a few little references, it is very much its own thing, and doesn't really interact much with the rest of the Hitchhiker's Guide lore. It is, however, very believable as being something from the same universe. That said, there was also a book adaptation of the game that was supposed to come out at the same time. Douglas Adams realized that he wouldn't have time to write the book and do the game, so he had Terry Jones write the book. And it's a fun little book, and it's something you could consider to be part of Hitchhiker's lore, but whether it's canon or not is kind of in question and I don't believe there's ever been an official statement on the matter. Since it is pretty self-contained, though, it's one of those things that you can take or leave as you desire, but I think reading the book, or playing the game for that matter, can definitely enhance your appreciation of the Hitchhiker's Guide universe. But it's one of those things that in my mind I kind of relegate to another sort of alternate reality thing. Now, one project that Douglas Adams was working on when he passed away was the movie adaptation of The Hitchhiker's Guide story. It's something he had been working on for decades, and it is something that I believe he came up with a bunch of different scripts for. When he passed away, they decided to continue with the movie, and I think in some ways maybe they tried a little too hard to stick to what he had put down, because I don't think the ideas were completely formed yet. A lot of times, Douglas Adams worked on things kind of on the fly, so there were a lot of things that he didn't get to see whether or not they were going to work in practice. He added new characters for the movie. There were certain things that were brought to the fore and certain things that were put in the background. And I don't know how much work they did on the script after he passed away. I know they at least did some. I don't think they did a whole rewrite. I believe, if I recall correctly, they wanted to be as respectful of what he had written as they could. So the problem is, for me at least, that it doesn't all translate to to the narrative of a film that well. The movie isn't great, in my opinion. It's okay. There are things that they do in it that are very kind of Hollywood, and a lot of those ideas could have come from Douglas Adams because he knew what type of thing he was producing, and he wanted, again, to adapt the story to fit the medium. But I think it's very unfortunate that he didn't have the opportunity to see the whole thing through and help hammer it into what eventual shape it would have taken. Now, the film as it is has tons of homages to the Hitchhiker series in particular, even within its own adaptation. There are a lot of little things that reference other versions of the story. And it's very cool. And it's neat for anyone watching who wants to do a deep dive into the lore. Because that stuff is there for that kind of audience member. But I don't think it brings quite as much as it needs to to the table for folks who are not fans of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy already. That said, the movie did come out at a time that was kind of important for me. It was something that I was able to cling on to because I felt that no matter what else happened in the world... At the very least, I lived to see my favorite book on the big screen, so it was good for me emotionally in that aspect at least. And if you're a fan of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and you haven't seen the movie, I'd say go ahead and see it. But do not expect it to be 
awesome, because sadly, I do not think it is. Now, there are more things that other folks did to try to continue the work. There were three more series of audio dramas that came out. They called them the tertiary phase, the quandary phase, and the quintessential phase, playing off the various ways to say third, fourth, and fifth, and taking it into the realm of the ridiculous, which I think is very appropriate. They had folks come in and adapt Life, the Universe, and Everything, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, and Mostly Harmless, into their own radio shows. When they could, they grabbed the same actors from the original radio show. When they couldn't, they recast, and they also ended up pulling in actors from the TV show to play different parts as well. It was a fun thing. I believe with the adaptation of Life, the Universe, and Everything, I don't think they were able to take it quite as much in the direction they would have wanted to, to make it fit better with what they were planning for the adaptations of the fourth and fifth books, so it didn't connect up quite as well, that largely being to do with the fact that I believe the producer had made a promise to Douglas Adams that if they were ever going to adapt Life, the Universe, and Everything, that it would be as close an adaptation as possible. Which is kind of unusual given the stance Douglas Adams typically took on these things when it came to new adaptations. But I think it was a thing that he had wanted to tackle himself, and unfortunately he didn't get the opportunity to. But they're pretty good, they're pretty decent. They are noticeably different, but they are fun to listen to. Now, one other thing happened, and that was that Adam's estate decided to have someone put out a sixth book in the series. Now, this is because Adams did want to put out another book. He was going to start working on it, I believe, and I'll get into a few details about that in a little bit, but he didn't really like what he had done with Mostly Harmless. I believe he'd said that the year that he wrote that was a very bad year for him, and that was reflected in the book. There's a lot in it that's very depressing, and it ends in a very depressing way. And he felt later that he wanted to end the series on a higher note. So he was going to write another Hitchhiker's book. Unfortunately, he didn't get a chance to before he passed away. So the estate finally decided to give the job of writing the sixth book to the author Ewan Colfer. He's the guy who wrote the Artemis Fowl series. I'm not really familiar with that series, I haven't really read much of anything of his, but this book, the sixth book, is titled And Another Thing. I am going to admit to everyone here listening now that I have not gotten all the way through that book. I started it a couple of years ago. I finally bought the Kindle edition, and I started reading it, and I just couldn't get through it. I wasn't mightily offended or anything. The guy writes differently from the way Douglas Adams does, and I don't think he was necessarily trying to be Douglas Adams, which I think would have made the book unreadable had he attempted that. There are parts of the book where he tries to wax philosophical or talk at length about things in the universe in a semi-expository fashion, the way that Douglas Adams does in the books, and I don't think he quite got it. Those parts where he's sort of trying to do a bit of a Douglas Adams imitation don't really work for me. And while he was using elements almost religiously from the previous five books and trying to make it cohesive and connect with everything, I just lost interest. I think I made it about halfway through the book, maybe two-thirds of the way, but it just didn't do it for me. Colfer does this thing in the book where it's, I think, kind of a slow burn, and I think that can work pretty well, and probably does work pretty well, from what I've heard, with his fantasy material or other stuff. But for a Hitchhiker's Guidebook, I think it just kind of takes me out of it. 
If nothing else, reading the Hitchhiker's books is very much like being the little metal sphere in a game of pinball. It bounces around a lot, and it does so unexpectedly. And I don't envy anyone who tries to take on the task of creating that kind of narrative in the fashion of Douglas Adams, or even approaching it. But the way the narrative was in this book just didn't work for me. I may try at some point to go back and finish it, because I have no idea what happens. I don't know how it ends. And I'd kind of like to get to it at some point. But I just had other priorities that overrode it. I started reading it while I was on vacation, and then when I got home I stopped. As far as the canon goes, I think I'm going to look at it as very much another one of those alternate realities. I think that's the only way I can look at it. And in the fullness of time, I think I'm going to try to give it a fair shake. I'll try to get back to it. But for right now, it's on the back burner. Now, I also believe that the folks who did the tertiary, quandary, and quintessential phases did another radio series adapting that sixth book. And I have actually just gone ahead and pulled it up because I was curious. And yes, they did do what they called the hexagonal phase. So apparently there is an adaptation of that one as well. I might get around to listening to it. Who knows? I was not as impressed with some things they did later, and I'll get to those in a little bit. Because now is the time to discuss the connections between the canon of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Douglas Adams' other work. Now, just to get it out of the way, I'll start with the other computer game that Douglas Adams collaborated with Infocom on, Bureaucracy. Now, there is a long and winding story about this game and Douglas Adams' history with Infocom. I'm not going to go into all of it now, but it is stuff that you can look up online. To me, it's fascinating stuff, but of course I'm a fan of both Douglas Adams and adventure games. But the long and the short of it is that there was supposed to be a sequel to the first Hitchhiker's Guide computer game. It was going to focus on the restaurant at the end of the universe, and it was supposed to start on the planet Magrathea, which is a planet whose inhabitants build other planets, and it's a major plot point for pretty much every version of the story. The first game ends with your stepping onto the planet, and in the books and the various series and the movie, there's a character Arthur meets pretty soon after that named Slarty Bartfust, who's an interesting sort of bored architect character. But we never saw that in computer game form, because they never got around to being able to get that game done. As has been mentioned in the biography of Douglas Adams, which is called Don't Panic, and which is written by Neil Gaiman, the first version of it came out back in the 80s, and it was actually the first thing of Gaiman's that I ever read. That was back when Neil Gaiman was doing more journalistic type stuff, and was working on the Sandman comic, I believe, or was getting ready to at least. There have been more editions of that book that have come out since, and I really should get around to reading those, because they probably now have the complete story of his life in there. But I digress. Not surprisingly, it's me. Anyway, as stated in that biography, Douglas Adams had an almost supernatural ability to miss deadlines. He had an often quoted line about it, where he would say something to the effect of, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing noise they make as they go by. And this is what I think contributed significantly to the death of the computer game at adaptation of the restaurant at the end of the universe. Instead, though, Adams was experiencing rather a lot of red tape in his life at that time, and so he pitched Infocom the idea for a game about bureaucracy. It is a very funny game, but I do not believe he wrote a lot of it. Again, he was notorious for his tendencies toward procrastination and the missing of deadlines, and I think he had a lot of other stuff he wanted to focus on at the time, so he was not able to personally finish that game. 
And if you ever look at the game, you'll see that the writer is credited as Douglas Adams and the staff of Infocom. Infocom got some other writers on it, one of whom said, I believe that they were able to do a passable imitation of Adams' style when the conditions were right, and I cannot remember what they said the conditions needed to be, be it drunkenness or being in a bloody-minded state or some other such thing, but they got the game done, and it does feel a lot like a Douglas Adams project. I think more than any other project where he had a lot of heavy collaboration and other people had to finish it. And that game does not have much in the way of connections with Douglas Adams' other work, but, oddly enough, it does mention Slaughter Bartfist. You have to get to the end of the game, and I think there are a bunch of inside jokes that were thrown in about the problems with the restaurant at the end of the universe game project, and that may very well be why his name appears near the end of the game. But it is kind of funny that one of the main things that you're expecting from the Hitchhiker's Infocom game sequel is something that does at least seem to appear briefly in bureaucracy. So that's amusing. I think that you also see at least a vague influence of some of the stuff that shows up in bureaucracy, or at least the things that inspired them, in the other major series of books that Douglas Adams wrote, the Dirk Gently series. Now, I say major series, but there were only really two books in it. You have Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, and you have The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul. Those books are a little bit more what we would come to call urban fantasy, but also have heavy doses of science fiction involved, particularly in the first of the two. In fact, the first of the two Dirk Gently books is heavily influenced by Adam's work on Doctor Who. To kind of bring things full circle back to the first topic that we had in this series, Douglas Adams was script editor on Doctor Who for a while, during the Tom Baker era. He wrote two of the stories that were released, and one that was not. The first one he wrote was part of the Key to Time series. It was called The Pirate Planet. And the second one that was released wasn't released under his name. It was actually, I believe, David Agnew, which was a pseudonym that the BBC used for a number of different writers at that time. And the title of that episode was City of Death, which is pretty much my favorite Fourth Doctor story. The third story that he wrote, which was called Shada, was never finished because there was a strike at the BBC at the time. Now, there actually was a follow-up on Shada. Last year, they released a DVD of it with animated versions of the missing parts, and the actors who were still around coming back to reprise their roles in voiceover. I haven't seen that yet, I really need to see that. But anyway, when Douglas Adams wrote Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, he used elements from City of Death and Shada. In the case of Shada, he ported an entire character over. And then that influence from bureaucracy that I was talking about shows up in The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul. In particular, the bits about how difficult it is to deal with everything that goes on at an airport. There aren't any direct quotes necessarily, but you can kind of see echoes of it if you've played the adventure game. I should also point out that the Dirk Gently series wasn't the first place where he reused Doctor Who ideas. A good deal of the plot inspiration for Life, the Universe, and Everything came from a Doctor Who script he'd written earlier that was never used. The Dirk Gently series, I'll just say briefly, follows a private detective by the name of Dirk Gently, or at least that's what he calls himself these days. On the one hand, he is a bit of a shady character who does whatever it is he can to get by, up to and including swindling clients out of their money by providing them with a lot of ludicrous expenses, and just basically talking around people and confusing them until he gets what he wants. But on the other hand, he is very much tapped into this idea of the interconnectedness of all things, and 
and in the books, it's hard to say whether he actually believes all the mumbo-jumbo that he spouts, or if he just uses it as a cover, and I kind of feel like, from the way he's depicted in the books at least, that he very much wants to be a sort of a smooth conman type, but the problem is that a lot of this sort of BS that he spouts turns out to be true, because he's actually got a sort of a sixth sense about it that does not operate when or how he wants it to, but it just sort of happens. So he's busy trying to live the life of a private detective, and separating clients from their money by being as absurd as possible, but he keeps getting sidetracked by the universe continuing to dump problems in his lap, because it turns out he's actually more correct about what he's talking about than he is prepared to be. And I think by the time we get to the second book, he's sort of leaning into it a little bit, and kind of accepting that these are the kinds of things that happen to him. The second book is where we start to see him using his Zen method of navigation, where he just sort of follows a car that looks like it knows where it's going, and uses that to end up wherever it is that he needs to be. And in some ways, he actually is a kind of a Doctor Who-like figure, in that he'll show up where there are problems and bowl everyone over with a wall of words as he tries to figure out what's actually going on. And he is quite clever, but he's only really doing things as long as either they interest him, like if there's some sort of theory he's trying to prove, or if he just wants to see where something leads, or if he's just trying to make ends meet. Now, in the second book, there technically is a character that Douglas Adams used in... The Hitchhiker's Guide series, but it easily could have been a different form of the character, because it's Thor, the God of Thunder. During Adam's life, it was never really explicitly stated whether that Thor is the same Thor that we see in the Hitchhiker's series. But one can draw the connection if one wishes. The Hitchhiker's version of Thor also does appear in the Ewan Colfer book, but like I said, I never finished, and another thing, so I don't know if Colfer draws that parallel as well. But up to the point that I read, he had not specifically stated that this Thor was also the Thor that appears in The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul. Now, the two Dirk Gently books were also adapted into radio plays later on by, I think, the same folks, or at least some of the same folks, who did the adaptation of books 3, 4, 5, and 6 of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. And in the audio drama adaptation of The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul, they make some specific connections to the Hitchhiker's Guide universe. They have references to the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation, and the actual who plays a depressed robot named Marvin in the Hitchhiker's radio plays comes back and plays that same character again, though they never say his name, in the Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul audio drama. So the folks who moved forward on those properties definitely wanted there to be a connection. And it's entirely possible that Adams himself also wanted there to be one. Questions about Thor aside, the biggest evidence to suggest that they might be in the same universe comes from unfinished material that Douglas Adams left left behind when he passed away. One thing he had been working on was a third Dirk Gently book. At the time, that's what it was anyway. The title was going to be The Salmon of Doubt. He wrote up a synopsis for it, and then he started writing the book. He never finished it because he got, I want to say, between a third and half of the way through when he realized that the ideas he was developing would work a lot better in a Hitchhiker's book. So that book was never going to be finished because he made that decision. If I recall correctly, I believe he'd indicated that the further he got, 
the more he felt he was kind of shoehorning Dirk into the situation, and he realized that he should just start over and do a hitchhiker's book. Now, it's been suggested that an unidentified character who appears near the end of what Adams did write of the Salmon of Doubt is actually supposed to be Ford Prefect. Folks have said that the description that Adams gives of that character is consistent with some of the descriptions that he gave of Ford during his time on Earth. And that's very possible. I think I think the idea, and I also believe this is what the producer of the various later radio plays thought as well, was supposed to be that the action of Dirk Gently takes place before the events of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Because, of course, near the beginning of Hitchhikers, the world is destroyed. Of course, it also could be that we're dealing with more alternate realities or some concept reflective of an alternate reality, since the end of Mostly Harmless kind of puts the kibosh on the idea that any version of Earth was supposed to survive. I'm sure in the next book he was going to work out a way to have at least some key characters survive, if not undo the whole thing. But unfortunately, we didn't get to see that. So there's the possibility that there's a connection there. But there's not really an authority to say one way or the other, if it's truly the case, that those two series share a continuity. In any case, the reason that I know what does appear in what he wrote of the Salmon of Doubt is because, obviously, it was released, along with a bunch of his other writings that hadn't been published in this form before, in a book that they also titled The Salmon of Doubt. If you like Adam's writing and you like funny essays, I highly recommend getting it. It's really good. Now, that is almost all of the connections I can think of between Douglas Adams' various works. There are a number of other things that he worked on. There were some interesting documentary-type TV specials that happened on either the nature of writing or the nature of technology, and I hunted those down on YouTube. They are pretty good. And one of them makes direct references to both the Dirk Gently series and the Hitchhiker's Guide TV series along with the books. I wouldn't necessarily consider it canon, but I do recommend seeing it. Even though you do have main characters from both series interacting, it's more on a demonstrative level. It's a documentary-style, interview-style thing. So I wouldn't say it necessarily ties directly into the events of those different series. But then, in the context of the documentary, there is a little bit of talk about characters showing up in a reality in which they're fiction. Maybe it is tied in. Hard to say. I have a couple other books that Adams wrote that I have not looked at as thoroughly as I would like. He wrote a book a while back called The Meaning of Lif, and what I have is a later edition of it. It's called The Deeper Meaning of Lif, and it's a dictionary of things there aren't any words for yet. He wrote this book with John Lloyd, and it's what it says it is. It's a dictionary, of sorts, but what this ties into is Adam's love of travel, because what he's done is he's taken a bunch of city names from around the world, strange city names, and he actually has a section in this book in the front where there are maps showing where all of these cities exist. And then, in the dictionary section, he takes those names and he makes up silly definitions for them. It's pretty funny. So, for example, there's a city called Dinsdale, which those of us who are Monty Python fans may remember was also used as the name of one of the two Piranha Brothers. 
And the definition that he has here for Dinsdale is one who always plays chopsticks on the piano. So they're amusing silly little things like that. There's a city called Skagway, and the definition he puts for that is sudden outbreak of cones strung on a highway. So it's very amusing. The other book that I have is a nonfiction book that he wrote, and it's called Last Chance to See. Now, unfortunately, I have not gotten around to reading it, but it does also tie into his travels. He wrote the book with Mark Carwardine, or Carwardine, or Carwardin. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. But it talks about his travels around the world with Mark, the zoologist, looking for exotic endangered creatures. And my understanding is that one of these is a type of monkey called the Ai, and references to that monkey and that trip, as it happens, appear in the Infocom game Bureaucracy. So there's yet another connection there. Now, the only other media that comes to mind that I haven't really mentioned has to do with the Dirk Gently series, and it again goes into that category of later work by other people. There was a run of comic books adapting the character. I have not read those, so I can't really speak to what those are like. But there were also two different TV adaptations, and both of these were done within the last ten years, so long after Douglas Adams had already passed away. The first one was on the BBC. It starred an actor named Stephen Mangan, and it was kind of a remix of of some of the elements with new elements thrown in. I believe it only ran for about four episodes. That first series was just called Dirk Gently. Then within the last couple of years, there was another adaptation called Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency that was produced for BBC America. That version was a bit more in-depth. It was very much more in the model of modern serialized TV. They did two seasons. There were eight episodes in season one and ten episodes in season two. This one starred Samuel Barnett and Elijah Wood, and it was implied to take place after the events of the first two books. I liked it better than the BBC series, the first season in particular because it was very much an exercise in confusion and crazy things happening all over the place, and then those maddening moments when all the crazy things actually do come together. The second season wasn't quite like that. They tried to lean a little bit more into this sort of fantasy aspect that the long dark tea time of the soul had brought into things, and I thought it was pretty cool, but it didn't have quite the same energy to it. In any case, those are all of the connections I can summon up at this point between the various things that Douglas Adams produced and the things that came out of those later, but we must return to the question of whether or not, in this case, canon matters. As I'm sure you've surmised by this point, to me, certainly it does. These are collections of work that I hold very near and dear to my heart. But if we try to look at this with the same lens that we looked at pretty much everything else, we have to ask whether the canonicity of one particular thing or another is going to matter in general conversation. And the thing that is both awesome and infuriating about the way Douglas Adams set these things up is that it's really not possible to tell. There are things that could be connected, but then again, they might not be. And I kind of imagine that Douglas Adams himself never wanted that to be fully defined. I think he very deliberately left the connections between his various works as a mystery. I think on the one hand, he might not necessarily have wanted to think too hard about it. But on the other, I'm quite sure it crossed his mind a number of times. And I think maybe the true answer to whether a connection really exists 
or not between one thing and another is, would it be funnier and or make more of an impact if it were connected? If so, then when you get to the point that that connection becomes relevant, then there it is. But if not, eh, it doesn't matter. We can always wonder, but if it's not significant, just leave it alone for now. I think that is probably the attitude to take. And I really would not put it past Douglas Adams to create a conundrum that can only be answered by figuring out how amusing the answer would be. It's one of those chicken and egg scenarios that he was almost famous for being able to come up with practically off the top of his head. And I think it's an appropriate way to look at his body of work. So, does the canon matter? Yes and no. Does that make sense? Of course it doesn't. It absolutely does not, and isn't that wonderful. And I think we're going to leave this series on that note. We've never really tried to tackle the question of whether canon overall matters, whether it's worth digging into or using as a way to justify arguments. We've touched on it, but we've never really tried to answer the question definitively, aside from general admonitions I believe I've made to not be a jerk, which still stand, by the way. And I believe I've said that if you're a writer, it certainly does matter, but then that's part of your job description, so of course it does. But in a wider sense, perhaps a cosmic sense. Does it really matter? Does it matter if one writer adheres to one thing and another writer doesn't? Does it matter if one entry in the annals hits on your favorite thing and another entry doesn't? I think the answer is that it's completely subjective. We as human beings made up the idea of canon, so whether it matters in the abstract sense depends entirely on what we're doing. A canon's value is really in its potential, and that's all predicated on what you're going to do rather than what you've already done. And of course, as any good student of the universe knows, and I'll go ahead and invoke him, Erwin Schrodinger certainly did, you don't really know what the future is going to be until you see it. Until then, it could matter. It could not matter. So I think my answer to the question of does canon matter will be yes and no. And isn't that wonderful? It has been a great pleasure bringing you this series. I don't know that I'm ever going to want to try another series like it again. For a while, I think I'm going to go back to doing regular introspective stuff, because there are plenty of topics I want to ramble about, and I think it's about time I got to it. But I thank you all for listening, and for indulging me as I ranted for ages on end about canon and whether it mattered. But now it's time to let it rest for a bit. So for now, take care, folks, and I'll see you all of a sudden.